Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host, and let me begin with a brief word of prayer. Lord, we uh, love you and seek you. We thank you for life. We pray you will fill us with your spirit, lead us to truth. Help those who are involved in the ministry in any way that you will uh, sustain them and bless those who are seeking as they tune in, that we will be able to help them in some way through what is said. They'll forget the things that are not right, but they'll remember the things that are. In Jesus' name, amen. In my stance uh, against Sola Scriptura and as articulated in that book, Knife to a Gunfight, along with the preterist views I've had, I've run into kind of a block wall that has tormented me for the past few months. What is the wall? How to truly explain the value of the word since the word I suggest was written to that audience in that day at that time and was for them specifically, how to explain the value of the word uh, in this world aside from all the rhetoric that you hear. Well, you know, it, it was written for us too and all the things that you hear how to explain that? I mean, I have friends in the faith who have also come around to uh, understand full preterism. They've come around to understand the, the problem with sola scriptura. And they say, if everything is said and done, McCraney, and the spirit is primary and preferential, and a person does not need to read the Bible to, or understand the Bible to be saved, what is its purpose? I mean, why do we even need it? And I've had a, a few people who have actually come to the position where they're like, we don't even really need it because it's subjectively understood. That's what you say, right? So uh, I fully understand the purpose of the Bible to me in my life. I completely get it. But I've had a difficult time convincing some of these friends that my subjective views should be valued and uh, that, that they're valid and my views are valid. So uh, I'm going to admit something here that is going to sound strange to you or very fringy. But in my life, and uh, the people who are close to me, at least Mary, can attest to this, but I have experiences that teach me principles. And typically, I'm engaged in a problem or some issue, and I'm working through it, and God seems to, or I'm making it up, but there seems to be some experiences or situations that teach me what he wants me to understand about the given concern. And it's happened to me since I was a kid, really. And you don't have to believe them and nor apply them to yourself. But through them, I gain personal insight into what things really are, should be, mean. And never are those insights contrary to the word of God. They just aren't. I've, I have never had one of these experiences that goes against what is written. So I've been churning over this question about the value of the word in people's lives today since Jesus has returned, or that's what I say, and since he has had the victory and he has turned over the kingdom to God and God is all in all, and since we are primarily led by the Spirit today, what does it mean? Well, last Wednesday uh, morning, I started getting texts, and they're from a man who used to come to campus, but he could not really understand campus too well and so he stopped coming and his texts were relentless and they started off with just saying things like chirp and then buzz and then question marks and McCraney and so uh, I tried to reel him in and I was starting to kind of let him know you know your, your texts are a waste of time they're they're really starting to waste my time 
and he, he would start to touch on some subjects about working and employment and stuff, but he kept relentlessly texting me these words all day. I counted up there as 85 in a seven hour period. And I mean, that's when it started on Wednesday. So I tried to politely at the end of the night say, you gotta stop, please. And he wrote, really? And then I woke up in the morning and I got another text from him. And so I told him straight up, you've got to stop these words coming to me. Half hour later, I got a call from a family member who's very upset with me. And she was at one time very on fire for the Lord and in the word daily. And but life and living and its struggles slipped away kind of from her exposure to the word. And which was once at one time in her life daily, it sort of became non-existent. And in this particular confrontation, so did the fruit of the Spirit. And, and the bitterness from the words that were coming from her to me via phone conversation and text uh, were very vo uh, volatile. And they peppered my day, Thursday, more of these. And it was pretty relentless. In between and during around these calls, I met up with a man who I've known in ministry for 10 years. And uh, he's very accomplished in many ways in the world. He remains a man of sorrows and he battles the strength of his flesh uh, constantly every three or four days for 10 years. And this is not an exaggeration. My family can attest to it. I've had conversations with him. And over the course of, that, of our relationship, he's battled with pot abuse. He's battled with alcohol abuse, porn addiction, great bouts of depression, very difficult stuff with his flesh. But here's the interesting thing about him. He's very well read. He's read hundreds and hundreds of books mostly self-help books, filled with the wisdom of men. He loves self-help books. In my estimation, they've done little to help him, and he continues like a wave of the sea to go back and forth. And, but the interesting thing is he cannot stand reading the Word. And he'll do it. It's often from pressure from me, but it doesn't last. And I've asked him, what is it about the Word that you don't like? And he says, I don't know. I just don't know. I just don't want to keep reading it. So as I walked to greet him, this was that man, in my phone, my, 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 in my pocket, my phone is buzzing with my relative who's raging against me. And uh, so standing right in front of me is a man who refuses to read the word or study the word uh, or hear it taught even. And in my pocket is someone else in my family who is uh, not my immediate family, who is really angry with me and has stopped reading the word, both in need of great help, both struggling, because uh, this life is hard. As I drove away, I got a call from my kid's sister. She's LDS, ardent, and she told me that right uh, at the time that she received the call from me earlier in the day, she was invited to a religion called the 12 Tribes religion. And while my sister is LDS, she's a seeker, and I have tried for years to get her to, to understand that it's not about men, it's not about religion, it's not about books, but it's about God. And, and I suggested constantly, read the Bible uh, to my sister, but she refused to. And, and she continues to be active in the Mormon church, but um, she, keeps, she never lets the word reassure her. She just keeps being active in this, these different religions. While I was speaking to her, I got a text from a gal who had wandered from Bible study. I've known her for a number of years, moved on to finding hope and truth in nature and God in the woods, and now has a very intellectual approach to the faith. 
and her distancing from the word began years ago and I was actually looking at a direct result. She sent me a video clip, uh, a, a raunchy video clip from a movie and she wrote so effing good. And so I saw someone who used to be really ardent in the, in the word about just trying to bring it in and, uh, and now this is someone who's come away from doing that and now they're sending me messages that say these movie clips that are vulgar are so effing good. So a culminating meeting of all this stuff had not registered with me yet. I did not think there was anything to it. But this is the background as I look back. And I'd shared these things with my family. After not being able to convince my sister that the 12 tribes were just a cult, and uh, after attempting to say just something nice to the vulgar video, after dodging a vicious a text from the relative of what a rat I am. I drove looking for a place to just sit and try to get some work done on a sermon. And I drove aimlessly and I got a text from someone in the ministry. And that person uh, texted me and the subject of the text was the word of God. Now this man has shared with me that words are everything. The word is spirit. And that the word and the words of God are spirit. And they're everything that, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. This was the midst of all this stuff. For reasons unknown to me, I chose to go to a Del Taco. And I very rarely go there, and, but I wanted to get a Diet Pepsi. And so I, I, I went there that day. I walked in the door and I was greeted by a large Hispanic man. And he was sitting there with like three unwrapped burritos in front of him. And as soon as I walk in, he said, hi, what's your name? And I said, my name's Sean. And I told him, uh, uh, you know, I was high and he said, would you like to sit with me? And I said that I had some work to do. His name was Jesus. And I approached the counter and, and I uh, came to a woman and she had bottle blonde hair, bad roots, bad skin, missing teeth, uh, tattoos all over her body in different places. And she said, how can I help you? And she took her phone out and started typing. And I said, are you putting my future order in your phone? And she said, uh, no. And I ordered a drink. She handed me the cup and she came around the corner and she said, what's your name? I said, my name is Sean. And she started to rattle off all sorts of disconnected information and use my name over and over and over again. And Sean, you know, that ice is uh, really good. And, and you know what? We also have been here quite a while, opened it. And Sean and just kept talking. Jesus called out from across the thing, Sean, Sean, will you sit with me? My phone beeped, more words from the relative. The die job of, uh, uh, I took my seat, she went a rack around the corner, I reached to get my backpack, and uh, Jesus kept talking, and he talked, and he kept talking. Before long, his yammering about nothing included an invitation uh, for me to engage with him in a homosexual act, because I'm a bear, he said, and that he and his boyfriend really would find me attractive. And uh, I declined, but noticed that I was being offered sex from a man named Jesus in a Taco Bell uh, who would not stop talking. He would not stop talking. It was incessant. And it was about everything. Look at that paper just flew across the floor. Oh, there's cheese on this burrito. I mean, it was endless. Words. My phone buzzed. It was my relative. More words of anger. As I regretfully considered what the text said, a man in a dirty cut-off shirt came into the Del Taco. He was talking to himself and laughing in the conversation. 
The only time he did not talk was when he ordered. And then after he ordered, he went to the corner table across the restaurant lobby and talked and laughed to himself out in the air. Jesus is talking and laughing, yammering on and on. Texts were coming in in a steady beat. My sister, the family member, the meth woman behind the counter is talking to uh, people who she works with. A young man jerking from methamphetamine addiction came in, I don't know how he got in there. The bottle blonde straight up behind the counter said, get out of here. They had a fight. He called her a name. She called him a name. He grabbed taco sauce packets and started throwing them at the ground. My phone buzzed, it was my relative. It said, you're the worst man on earth. From the other side, a thin woman came in the door. She was wearing a pair of white see-through spandex shorts that were filthy from the crotch all the way up the back. Filthy. She was meth addicted and she stormed to the counter. Apparently she was the girlfriend of the tweaker who had just been booted out. A verbal altercation occurred between the employee bottle blonde and the filthy white shorts and they started to dramatically cackle voices. In the meantime, Jesus starts announcing what is being said. The man in the corner is yammering on and on, talking, conversing to himself, laughing. Dirty pants girl boyfriend rushed in and lunged at the girl from behind the counter. Lunged at her. I'm not sure where everybody came from, but within minutes, there was about seven to nine, maybe 10 people in there. And all of them were excitedly egging the situation on, excitedly addressing what was going on with words. Jesus was talking with words. The crazy guy in the corner is talking with words about it, but not looking at it. Everyone's talking. The spirit of the room just ignited. Words were everywhere. The chaos at the counter continued and people started leaving and coming. They, it was, and then they come in and they'd say something, and they'd leave and they'd go out and then they'd go in the parking lot and say something and come back in and it just continued to grow. My phone buzzed. It was from somebody I know who sent me a Metallica clip by a puppet. I was, I was going insane. I was literally going insane. Filthy shorts girl came running out of the bathroom and screamed, a woman has had a heart attack in the bathroom and she has tears. Instead of everybody running in to help, they all started fighting with each other. I don't know what it was. Jesus calls 911 and he screams that someone is dying in the restroom with Taco Bell on 4th South. A morbidly obese man came and started yelling because his order wasn't being taken. The manager finally popped in, went into the restroom and came out and said, there's no one in there. And Dirty Pants laughed maniacally. <laughs> maniacally. The fire department pulled up, only to be told it's a false alarm. A woman in a long skirt, frayed at the bottom, came in talking to nobody. I got a text, I hate you. A man in scars and tats entered. He came and sat in a booth. First thing he said, what's your name? First thing. I said, Sean. He told me all about being shot, all about being stabbed, all about his life and his philosophy on how to live life. An emancipate, emanci emaciated teen came in. 
She put her bike upside down, went to the counter, waited for two minutes. When the, someone finally came to the counter, she said, can I refill my water? She refilled the water, came out, I put my glasses on. It wasn't an emaciated teen woman. It was a 65 or 75 year old female uh, homeless woman. And her eyes were dead and her face was gnarled. And she didn't speak, but she looked at me with such vile hatred. And my phone buzzed and it buzzed again. And suddenly the tatted bottle blonde came from behind the counter, ran out into the parking lot. Dirty Pants was riding on a motocross bike and she pushes her over. She hits the asphalt. Jesus calls the police now, 911. There's a physical fight going on. Kept going. Insults are exchanged. Man with laughter and talk kept going. Is this going on a long time for you? A lot of words, isn't it? My phone buzzed again. I couldn't even read it. I couldn't take another word from another human being. The police came. It broke up. Apparently, Bottle Blonde and Filthy Pants were sisters. No charges were filed. Jesus stood up and said he was going to leave. He took a picture of everybody standing around. He said, hey, Sean, what should I call this? I said, Taco Hell. He laughed. He went up to the manager and he said, I want a job here. This place is great. And he left. <laughs> After bidding me goodbye, I walked out of the place through the walking dead who were all in the parking lot. I went and I laid on my bed that night and I could not go to sleep. I laid there till probably 1230 or one and I went to bed fairly early. And I am asking God, what is this? What is this all about? This started Wednesday, it's Thursday night, midnight, and I don't get it. And I woke the next morning and I knew the common denominator. God didn't speak to me verbally, but in my heart I knew. Every single person in that story was lacking the word of God in their life. Every single one of them. They may have, many of them could have claimed to be believers at one time or still, but they did not have the word of God coursing through their life. It was so obvious. What did they have? The words of men. The words that man says you can help yourself. The word of men that say it's okay, it's okay to use drugs. It, words that say you need to speak your mind in this day and age. Words that say you can be what you want, do what you want, live free, whatever. Words of men and all of them were lacking the word of God. <clears throat> and so I realized why we have the word of God in our lives. Because while we might even be saved, while we might know him from our heart, that word keeps us hearing what he wants us to know and not what all the millions of other voices are trying to tell us and suggest to us. I have an answer for my friends now who say, tell me what the purpose of the word is. And I have it through that literal experience. All right, with that, let's continue on our discussion of creation. Let's get down to it. We'll begin talking about a long debated uh, discussion of how old the earth is and how long it took God to create it. Hovering around this question are ancillary arguments. Just understand how old the earth is. There hovers around that arguments that talk about was the flood worldwide? 
Did, was it six literal days or were they longer than literal 24-hour periods? Did the ark hold all species of animals, dinosaurs included? All this stuff is kind of couched in the question of creation. <coughs> Sorry. Specifically, the arguments are really between what we might call biblical literalists and what we might call biblical liberals. And speaking specifically of the days of creation, the arguments can sort of be polarized into two camps, people who are called old earthers and people who are called young earthers. Old earthers traditionally believe in a very, very old earth, and they believe that the creation periods were, could have been six longer periods or shorter periods, but they didn't have to be 24-hour periods. Young earthers typically believe that the creation took place, like the Bible says, a day, and therefore that's a 24-hour period of time, and in six days God created the universe. If I understand it right, uh, that's the kind of the main difference between the old earthers and young earthers. Included right in the middle of this debate is that period about creation and time. Young earther proponents might be best described for the most part, as taking the Bible literally. And therefore, by mathematical computation, they take the math that the Bible provides us when it comes to days and years and times, and they deem the earth to be somewhere between 6,000 years old and 10,000 years old. That is a new earth belief. The, literaliz uh, the literalism that they implore that they say we have to take the Bible literally, typically applies to most other areas of the Bible as they read it. And they will take most of what the Bible says literally, although there are some things that they will say is not literal, and they admit that. One of the most popular um, New Earthers, biblical literalists, creationists, I'm a creationist, but I'm not a New, new Earther, but what they would call a creationist, is a, man, a brother named Ken Ham. He's out of Australia. His ministry is called Answers in Genesis, and it operates a creation apologist organization. And that includes something like they have made a replica based off Genesis 6 of Noah's Ark uh, to the tune of over $100 million. Uh, they take this seriously. They believe that $100 million uh, is well spent in replicating the size of what Noah's Ark would look like because it has to mean more than just a, a tourist attraction. It's telling the world something. It's saying this Bible is literal. Uh, is Brother Ham right? I'm sure he means well in his efforts. I don't know if he's right or not. I don't know if he's right in spending $100 million to build the ark. Uh, but he thinks he's right, and he's a brother. So on we go. At the other end of the spectrum, we have a gaggle of believers who take the contents of the Bible, shall we say, it, they open it up to a little more scrutiny, especially relative to today's science and findings. Um, who's right? We, I've generalized old earthers as liberals, but that probably isn't fair of me. Uh, in fact, I'm gonna name some names right now. They are all admitted public old earthers. They all uh, say that the Big Bang cosmology does not threaten the Christian orthodoxy at all. Did you hear that? 
Big Bang cosmology does not threaten Christian orthodoxy at all. And that uh, doctrines of ages of the earth and ages of creation and times like that are not crucial. Here are some of them who fit in that category, and they're certainly not liberals. Chuck Colson, William Lane Craig, uh, Norm Geisler, Hank Hennegraaff, Greg Kokel, C.S. Lewis, J.P. Moreland, Hugh Ross, Francis Schaeffer, Chuck Smith, Lee Strobel, all have publicly admitted that Big Bang cosmology doesn't wipe out anything with Christian orthodoxy, and neither does the age or the timing of the creation of the earth. Now, to some people, that's revolutionary to hear that. We get this idea sometimes because of the loudness of the voices that are online that the, the way to believe is this way and nothing else can alter that. But that's because the people who are promoting that are most loud. But those guys are great Christians, very conservative Christians, and they have taken the old earth stance. So who's right? I would offer this simple opinion regarding the age of the earth, the time of the creation, the worldwide flood, the ark, the animals, you've heard it before, all the food that it required for the animals, the waste management, none of it, no matter how important promoters of the stance believe it is, none of it, conservative or liberal views, changes or alters the good news. None of it. Believe however you're going to believe. There's freedom in that. Be an old earther, be a young earther, but know that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son and that we look to believe on him so that we may have life eternal. That's the good news. Am I simplifying the matter so that it can, it's convenient to me? In a way, I am. You see, Jesus said something important in Matthew 5, and this overrides in my life the way to see issues like this. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. That's what he said. Now, I believe we can be peacemakers by introducing Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to people so they can have peace in their life. And I also believe that we can be peacemakers by simply refusing to divide over disputable matters. This is a disputable matter, in my opinion. Some say it's not. I think there is a higher plane waiting for uh, Christianity. And I think that higher plane is inviting believers to step up on it and to exist there without dividing and fighting or even dismissing anybody over these non-essentials. To step up on that plane and exist there. When we do that, we're going to have a chance of greater survival and greater missional efforts. And when we can reach down and we can say someone who says, I'm a young earther, the earth was created in six 24-hour periods, and an old earther can say, God bless you, brother. That's a wonderful uh, idea, and you may be darn right. Come on up to the plane. And the, and the young earther can say, you, got, you believe in old earth? Well, I accept that. It's okay. When we can do that, we are going to make inroads to the hearts and minds of other people. So awfully speaking of those who are liberal and who read the biblical narrative liberally or see it liberally, there's often an attitude that's dismissive toward young earthers. There's often this attitude of ivory tower intellectualism that thinks, oh, you, you silly young earther. You're going to go by those old archaic notions of the Bible. How silly of you to do that. So there's an attitude, and typically old earthers will refer to young earthers more as zealots and the crazies and the like. On the other hand, the biblical literalists, they will often demand that there's no other way to see these things. 
And they might even say that liberals are unsaved or not Christian or possibly even going to hell for embracing the fact that they don't believe in a young earth. So we have some really ugly stuff going on between. We need to all grow the heck up. I mean, believe what we're going to believe, but fully allow and love others to embrace their differing views. Now, I've pointed this out. I'm going to present what I think. And I'm going to just start with this now, and then we'll get to the phone lines. 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Let me begin by reiterating that I accept anyone who sees this differently, but there are plenty of renowned Christian leaders who do not side with the traditional, fundamental view of New Earth. R.C. Sproul is a noted five-point Calvinist, founder of Ligonier Ministries, and he's the guy who drafted the original Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. On Biblical Inerrancy. That's R.C. Sproul. Man, super, super conservative in his theology. Very, very biblically oriented. He said this, when people ask me how old the earth is, I tell them I don't know because I don't. That's, that's a really remarkable uh, response from a man who stands on biblical inerrancy uh, so ardently. Contrary, young earthers will often say uh, that the Bible tells us how old the earth is. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us its age. Again, through biblical deduction, men have tried to answer the question through mathematics but God doesn't tell us. Why do you suppose God doesn't tell us? Why do you suppose that, that we don't have it really written out? This is how old the earth is. The New Earth uh, believers also suggest that a plain reading of Scripture makes the age of the earth obvious and often say that believers never doubted the age of the earth until a guy named Charles Darwin came along. New Agers, in their, in their rhetoric and in their uh, apologetics, and, and when I say rhetoric, old earthers use rhetoric too, but new earthers will say, this was never a question in Christianity until Darwin came out and suddenly evolutionists are causing us to doubt that the earth was created in six 24 hour period days. And listen, I've mentioned Darwin before, I wanna say this, we are not at war with Darwin or those who teach Darwinism. We're not at war. We are not at war with evolutionists. Evolution may play an important role in the way that we see, see how God engineered the universe. Notice how I put that? How God engineered the universe. We're not at war with him. Darwin may have brought many things to the table that Christians can learn from. Uh, when we take sides, when we go to war against Darwin, and I see those fish eating Darwin's fish and Darwin's leg fish eating the Christian fish, I mean, it's just another way to separate us from being able to greet people with Jesus. That's all it is. It's Satan is just allowed to take us and automatically put us in this, stepped up to the higher plane. We don't have to worry about it. Anyway, the idea that no one doubted the age of the earth until after Darwin is just simply not true. And let me wrap up by proving it to you. It may come as a surprise that some of our most literal brothers and sisters of the word of days gone by were not convinced uh, of a young earth interpretation. Augustine, uh, writing in the early fifth century about the length of days in the creation account of Genesis said, quote, what kind of days these were, it is extremely difficult or perhaps impossible to determine. That's in City of God, a great book. So he says it's impossible to determine. Grisham Markham, J. Grisham Machen. He's uh, one of the 20th century's best 
critic of theological liberalism. Machen is a critic of theological liberals, right? Uh, he wrote, quote, it is certainly not necessary to think that the six days spoken of in the first chapter of the Bible are intended to be six days of 24 hours each, end quote. It is certainly not necessary. That's Machen who fought liberals all the way through. Uh, Old Testament scholar, defender of biblical inerrancy, Edward J. Young said, that question which is difficult, that is a question that is difficult to answer, talking about the length of creative days. Indications are not lacking that they may have been longer than the days we now know, but the scripture itself does not speak as clearly as one would like. One of the most moving and vital theologians of the 20th century, defender of scriptural authority says, quote, faith in an inerrant Bible does not rest on the recency or antiquity of the earth. The Bible does not require belief in six literal 24-hour creation days on the basis of Genesis 1-2. It is gratuitous to insist that 24-hour days are involved or intended, end quote. Old Testament scholar, Hebrew linguist, Gleason Archer, he wrote, and he's a strong advocate of biblical uh, inerrancy, said, quote, on the basis of internal evidence, it is this writer's convention that Yom, in, that's in Hebrew, in Genesis, could not have been intended by the Hebrew author to mean a literal 24-hour uh, day. Now, can we find scholars who side with young earth? Of course we can. That isn't my point. I am giving quotes that support my opinion. That's just my opinion. Uh, but again, what does it really prove? The quotes I gave you, they prove my opinion. The quotes that you could give me, they'll prove your opinion. But it does prove that we ought to set those divergent things on the back burner in our fellowship, in our ministerial outreach, in our unity of the faith. It means we ought to let these divisions die a natural death. I know every show almost, I'm pitching this because I think these shows really aren't for right now. I think these shows are for a day when people are gonna say, what, what should we be doing? And I really believe that what these shows that we do in Breaking Bread and Earl with the LDS and everybody else, these shows are going to help people say, okay, let's step back from the division. Let's step back from all that. We have our opinions. You might be right. You might be right. Before we open up the phone lines, I want to point just one quick thing out. And I've experienced this. When you get involved in ministry, sometimes you can be like a horse with blinders on. And what you have in front of you, it says ministry. And it says my ministry. And it says ministry I started. And this is our goal. And most people I'm sure who start ministry do it with good intentions. They want to serve God and they want to help their fellow man. But it's really, really easy for the impetus of I've got something that's really important to share and promote for God and man to easily overwhelm a person and make them close-minded and consumed with their ministry and keeping it alive and going and uh, not promoting the cause of Christ. So before long, ministry becomes more important than anything and everything else. And the ministry can become more about being right than doing what God wants. And it's just something you have to remember when it comes to ministries that are so focused, focused on one certain point. Next week, reasons, uh, more reasons why the 24-hour day, and then we're going to get into the fall 
in the weeks to come. Let's open up those phone lines. And we have a spot to show while the operators clear any calls that may be coming in. James 1.12, sung by the McCraney sisters. We have five CDs that are available. You go to hotm.tv. They're all uh, Bible verses put to music. Uh, a lot of great Christian music out there. People singing great uh, tunes, great songs. But our focus is always about the Word of God and getting the Word of God into hearts and heads and minds because some, we believe that those things will carry through uh, well in your life, as we just pointed out in that long story I told. Uh, let's read. A, this is from, oh, I didn't put it on here. Uh, this is from a man who watched our recent show on the serpent where I brought up the possibility, according to Adam Clark, that the serpent was an orang otang. Uh, he said that the main point is the serpent was a tool. It was a tool used by Moses to bring forth an important point. John Anderson from The Voice of Reason, who has passed away, had a great illustration for the serpent in the garden, which I would be happy to share. Anderson would claim the serpent in Genesis was none other than Adam. Now, when I first read this, I thought, oh boy, now what are we talking about? And that Adam's seed and the virgin seed, uh, it was being spoken of covenantially through the seed of Abraham. If the seed was speaking of a Satan, it would bring about a doctrine called serpent seed and where others claim angels slept with women and all this stuff and stuff. And so I guess this, this uh, Anderson, John Anderson from Voice of Reason has deduced through his study of Genesis that uh, the serpent was the nature in man to go against the word of God. And that that is what brought about the fall and that it was not an actual serpent. And, and Anderson goes on and says, listen, if Adam named the creatures, Adam had the most intelligence, how on earth would that creature that he named slide on up and tempt him to uh, eat of this fruit? So we talked about it in the show on serpent. I don't know if I believe that, but I thought it was an interesting point for you to consider. And maybe we could check out John Anderson and see what he has to say. Cindy says there's a new uh, LDS missionary slant that they're using now to explain why Joseph Smith's stories and mission were all true. They are coming up now and saying Joseph would never put his family through 
everything that he did if it was a lie. She says, how do you respond to that? And I said, you know, if you think about it, men and women will put their family through all sorts of things uh, that are lies. Uh, we will spend our job doing things to, to our family suffering. We will, uh, we will subject them to religious abuse. We'll subject them to, uh, 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 I mean, in third world countries, fathers submit their children to child prostitution. Read Raven by Jacobs. Uh, read uh, Karl Marx by Sperbler. Uh, read about Marx and what he put his family through. Get, and are you saying that Marxism was true? And Raven and Jim Jones was true? Uh, read about Ivan the Terrible and what he did with his family. And are you saying that what he, uh, he put his family through, that means that, it, that uh, his message was true? That's a really weak, weak argument. I'm not saying this was Smith, could have been, but megalomaniac men will put everybody through everything to get their point across. If he was one of them, uh, you know, obviously he would do that. So I think that's a really weak subject. Uh, from Jocks Hill, this is really interesting point. He says, Sean, check out this Facebook guy's view of hell proving that it's not eternal. Now listen to the logic. He says in Mark 9, 47 through 48, Jesus said, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown in hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, Jesus just didn't pull that out of thin air. Where did Jesus get that from? He got it from Isaiah 66, 24. This is what Isaiah 66, 24 says. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched and they will be loathsome to all mankind. And then the writer says, now look at that verse. Do you see the words dead bodies there? Dead bodies are bodies that are dead, not burning eternally and suffering. That's interesting. Jesus quoted from Isaiah 66, 24, and in that passage it says, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies that had rebelled against me. The worms eat them and they die. Could it be that those dead bodies are being eaten and consumed, but they're dead? There's nothing in them that is being eternally consumed, uh, according to the old Augustinian notion that the flesh will purge away forever and ever and ever under eternal flames uh, without any reprieve because the flesh is so brutal. It's a really interesting point and something to think about. Got an uh, uh, email from uh, Marco, who is an Italian movie director, and he says, I hope your life is really good. I think that uh, part of your personality shows you're a good man, but you have my sympathy. He's a, a faithful Latter-day Saint. Of course, I don't uh, agree with most everything you say, but I respect your opinion, and I still follow you on the internet. Maybe we'll meet one day. Uh, good luck with everything. Whatever you need, I'm here. And then he goes on to ask questions. Uh, listen, to Marco, who watches us in Italy, who's faithful LDS. You want to stay LDS? We've said this for years. Go ahead, Marco. Do the temple. Stay LDS. But I have a challenge for you. Go to God and just say, this is Marco. Open my eyes to any truth you want me to know. Whatever truths you want me to know, let me see them. Just ask him, Marco. 
you're an open-minded man. You're a smart man. You're a movie director. You know, I, I, you gave a clip to some of your films. Very, I guess you're very popular in Italy, and you love the show. Go to God, and just ask Him. Show me the truth, and trust that He will. I'm sure you will uh, trust that. You love God. You trust Him. So do that, and hopefully we can talk about that. This is a very interesting, and I'm going to read it. I think it's worth it. Hello, Sean. My name is Bill. I just came across an old email I had sent you back in 2014. The email was about how my marriage was crumbling and my wife was returning to the LDS church. Well, I was supposed to give you a call, but between my broken heart and my honest bitterness, I never did. Often when people write in, and they have a lot to say, and I just say, just call me. And I put my phone number. And probably, you know, eight times out of ten, they don't. They never do. And so Bill was one of them. He said, uh, here's an update on the last two years. My wife did divorce me after a 25-year relationship and four children. Now, uh, and then she married an LDS man. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because it happens all the time. And when religion comes between a couple who have been LDS, the most natural thing is because you've built such a foundation on the Mormon church is for that couple to dissolve. The Mormon church typically promotes that. Um, he goes on and says, when our divorce hit a snag and wasn't granted as she is hope, she already had a wedding plan, uh, date planned for this man. So what did they do? Since the judge looked right at her and said, you cannot enter into another marriage or domestic relationship by law until your divorce is final, they went ahead and went through a private ceremony and were married to justify living with her new man. So roughly two or three months, she was married to two men. Both her family and the church openly supported her. Astonishing. The tough part at this point was not only her betrayal in our long-term marriage, but obviously our kids. She uh, went on and she uh, left and he goes on to say how the kids have uh, been alienated now in this. She thought she was gonna have them go with her. Uh, the family's been broken up. The kids are alienated from the mother. The kids have come to Christianity, which he rejoices in Christ over. But he goes on to say how the LDS church, this is his message. I have heard you say numerous times not to marry an LDS person. I'm here to say don't for the sake of your future family and heartache. If you are not LDS, the church does not care about you. I really hope we can meet someday. Love your cause. It's crucial for truth seeking. Uh, that's from Bill. And I, I would attest they told my wife, the bishop told my wife, for her to leave me. And um, there's an undercurrent that a woman or a man is virtuous if they leave a, a spouse who has left the church. And I think it's really a sinister side to that religion in that they will break up families in order to keep people active in the church instead of have a couple stay together and not be part of it. Uh, this is from Adam. He says, I have thought about coming, former LDS, to milk or meat. That's the church we do here in Utah. But it scares the hell out of me that I might fall for something that comes with bondage like I had as a Mormon. I was wondering if there is a specific book I could read to maybe deal with some of these feelings. Uh, he said, I was just watching your newest episode. I'm a lot like your friend Bob, who is moved by feelings and tears and all that stuff. 
So if you're moved by that, you might think I would recommend a book that will move you to tears to trust other things, but I'm not going to do that, Adam. First, I would say get in the Bible, read the New Testament, start with the Gospel of John and just read it and just relax in the Lord. Uh, to toughen you up when it comes to feelings and tears and emotionalism, I'm not going to recommend a book about Mormonism I'm going to re because that's just about Mormonism and you can be fooled by another faith too. I'm going to recommend two books to you which will be tough on you, but they will really toughen you up in your critical thinking. True Believer by Eric Hoffer, known as the Longshoreman Philosopher, and How We Know What Isn't So by Thomas Gilovich. I read those two books probably four times in the past 30 years, and they remarkably sharpen you up to, being to not being manipulated by people and their ideas of how things should be. Again, it's going to uh, really hit you hard because they're pretty acerbic. But read the Bible, and if you want to kind of understand the, how we're motivated by our feelings and manipulated by them, True Believer by Hoffer and uh, How We Know What Isn't So by Thomas Gilovich. Oh, anything else here? No calls out of emails. And so we are going to cut the show. How many minutes short? Ten, Ten minutes short. You get a break tonight from my voice, and my yammering on and on and on. Open up your Bible. Refresh yourself. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start